Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello there. Hello. And today we are going to be discussing the death of Sylvia Likens. But before we get into that, if you are new here, we want to say hello and welcome. Returning spooksters, thank you so much for joining us again. We love you so much. If you guys would like to hang out with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle for that is at Three Spooked Girls. And we also have an amazing Facebook group. That's Three Spooked Girls Official. We got book club. We got special swag, Jessica and I make each month. Sometimes we do watch parties, live streams, all kinds of fun stuff over there. So definitely check that out. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash three spooked girls. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month and two and up, you get Jessica's Slaughter's movie reviews and plot lines, which is a super, super fun bi-weekly. I was like, by what? I almost said bi-monthly and I was like, no. No, (laughs) that's wrong. I mean, is it wrong, though? This is one of those discussions where you're like, what is the definition of bi, like, bi-weekly, bi-monthly? Is it, like, I don't, like, at this point in time at, like, 1030 at night, I'm like, I don't know the answer to this. Ask morning, Jessica. But basically, long story short, twice a month, Jessica has a bonus segment over on Patreon. She talks about awesome movies. There is swag available for prizes if you guess the movie right. All kinds of fun stuff. It's one of my favorite things to edit. I love it. And from there, five and up, you start to get video content. So at the end of each month, we do a live stream together. So that's a lot of fun. And then we also have my Haunted Ground series, which is a coffee recommendation and also about a haunted object or possessed item. And that's all video. So lots of fun over there. And of course, it goes up from there for you guys. So check that out. Look at the tiers. It's all broken down for you. But we are going to go ahead and take a quick promo break. We will be right back. Hi there. I'm Megan. And I'm Danielle. And we are Crime and Roses. We are a true crime and bachelor franchise recap podcast. Yeah, we're both. We are two Georgia attorneys watching and recapping all things Bachelor just for you. So we're talking Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, Winter Games, Summer Games, all the games. Basically any show that ABC comes up with and forces us to watch. And then we'll release a true crime episode connected to what we've seen on the show that week. So if you don't like true crime, we have The Bachelor. And if you don't like The Bachelor, we have true crime. And if you don't like either... 
We're probably not the podcast for you, and that's okay. So, if you're into one of those things, both of those things, come check us out as we combine our two favorite things into one-stop listening shop for you. So find us on your favorite podcatcher and on social media at Crime and Roses and email us at crimeandroses at gmail.com. Bye. Love you. Mean it. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. I'm going to give it over to Jessica to tell us what our drink is this week. Well, because this case is like one of those cases where we don't really want to associate like happy things with it. Mm -hmm. But keeping in the thought that January is typically the month where people have New Year's resolutions and they're trying to stay healthy and whatnot, I thought I would find a healthier drink and I found a mojito. Another mojito? Yeah, I feel like mojitos are like the drink of like the the healthy drink. Drink of the month. (laughs) January, mojito month. It should be like (laughs) March mojito month or May mojito month, but it's January mojito month. Yes. But it's a watermelon mojito. Ooh, okay, okay. And I don't know like if you can find watermelon in January. I just thought of this. I mean, probably, yeah. I feel like you can. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the pre-cut, like the little cube in the plastic containers, that's year-round. Yeah. Bam. Well, because you need, it's cubed, so if you get that, it's already done. So you need watermelon, lime juice, honey, white rum, mint leaves, and lime spritzer. I love it. You know, I like a good healthy drink, and like right now, my my jam is just whatever seltzer I have mixing it with vodka. There you go. Yeah, I do that a lot, too, because it's just so easy. And I have both on hand. (laughs) Right. I mean, staples in my house. Both. Yes, yes. Okay, guys. Well, I am going to say a disclaimer now. If you are not familiar with the Sylvia Likens case, it is very, very rough. That's an understatement. Trigger warning for physical abuse and sexual abuse. And technically, Sylvia was a minor, so she like she's 15, 16, but it's still a child. So if that's something that may trigger you and you need to skip this episode, we completely understand. I am going to be walking through pretty much everything that happens. It's not one of those cases where I can be like, this abuse happened, move on. Right. If this is something that's going to trigger you, please skip this episode. Go listen to something. We have a happier episodes. We had an art heist. If you haven't listened to that one, go listen to it. It's funny. Or the maple syrup heist. That was a good one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I just really wanted to say that because this was a tough one to research and I'm pretty desensitized, as bad as that may sound. So there's that for you guys. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949 to Lester and Elizabeth, a.k.a. Betty Likens in Lebanon, Indiana. She was the middle child of five, and interestingly enough, her older and younger siblings were both two sets of twins. So it was like twins, her, twins. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. It was definitely weird. Like, I was like, oh. Yeah. That's not normal. Right? She's straight up the middle child. Like, literally. So her older siblings were named Daniel and Diana, and her younger siblings were named Jenny and Benny. And Sylvia was actually super protective over Jenny. She had dealt with polio, and in turn, this caused her to have a weaker leg that gave her a limp, and she also wore a brace. So she was always, like, really protective, really close with her younger sister. Sylvia's parents worked the carnival circuit all across the country. They would have a booth. They would sell beer, soda, candy, concessions, you know, stuff like that. 
So they were on the move quite a bit. And kind of like where we get into our story, Diana wasn't really part of this. She was older, like she was married. She had her own family, all of that by the time we're in the 60s. Now, the two boys of the family would go and work with their parents, but Sylvia and Jenny were typically left with family members because they didn't really want the young girls at the carnivals and everything like that. And it was also stated that they wanted them to go to school. So typically they would stay with their grandmother when their parents were away working. Sylvia was described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl. Her nickname by friends and family was Cookie. And to earn spending money, she would babysit, she would run errands and do chores and things like that for her neighbors. Her parents were struggling financially, so it was said that Sylvia would actually give part of what she earned to her mom to try to help out. And when she wasn't working, Sylvia liked to go to the skating rink with Jenny. And due to her weak leg, she had to help her out a lot. And so like, she was like, yeah, she'd be like, you know, her arm wrapped around Jenny and they'd be skating and have a great time and, you know, cute sister stuff. It is adorable. It is. So our actual story here will start in June of 1965. The Lycans were living in Indianapolis at the time and the girls were with them. Well, one day, Betty and Lester actually got into it and she took off and she took the girls with her. While this happened, on July 3rd, Betty would actually be arrested for shoplifting and be taken into custody. Where they were at, currently, Sylvia and Jenny, they were attending Arsenal Technical High School, and they had a friend there named Darlene McGuire that they hung out with. While while this drama was going on, they were with Darlene, and one day they were hanging out, they would meet a girl named Paula. So the girls were with Paula when all the mom drama was happening, and they were listening to records and having some sodas, and they were talking about what had happened. So Paula actually offered to have the girls spend the night that night, because with their mom gone, things were just kind of sketch. So they did, and everything was fine. And the next morning, so July 4th, Lester had actually went out to look for the girls after he found out that Betty was in jail. And he ran into Darlene and she essentially told him like where the girls were, where to go and stuff like that. So he headed over to Paula's house. And when Lester got there, he was greeted by Paula's mother, Gertrude or Gertie. And she's a huge, huge part in this story. So I'm going to give you guys some background info on her before we continue on because her background is also important for context text of the story. So, Gertrude was born on September 19, 1928, in Indianapolis to Molly Myrtle and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen. And there isn't a lot out there about her childhood. It said they were a working-class family and that she was very close with her dad, but not with her mom at all. Some of the sources I read actually said she was, quote, frigid with her mom. So, there really wasn't a relationship there. Then, sadly, when Gertrude was 11, she would actually witness her dad having a heart attack and die. And he was only 50 years old. That's horrific. It's bad enough being an adult to see somebody die, but being an 11-year-old and seeing your parents die? Especially if it's the one parent like you are attached to. Exactly, exactly. Then at 16, she would drop out of high school and marry her boyfriend, John Banizakowski. I'm going to not say their last name anymore because um, it's one of those names that's tough, and I hope I'm saying it right. Anyways, so (laughs) he was 18, so he was only a couple years older than her, and they would have four kids together. Now, their marriage was definitely not all sunshine and rainbows. John was said to have a serious temper, and he was abusive. And the couple would actually remain married for 10 years, but they would get divorced and she would get custody of the four kids. 
And then just a year after the divorce, Gertrude would get married again, this time to a man named Edward Guthrie. Now, this marriage didn't last long at all. They were only married for three months, and then they split up. Essentially got an old. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those quickie marriages. Right? And the reason for their divorce, allegedly, was because he didn't like having the kids around. Shortly after that, because Gertrude wastes no time, she actually got back with John and they got remarried. He was a cop and stuff and he was in law enforcement and whatnot at this time. But after getting back together, they would have two more kids. So six kids now. Besides that, things did not really change. They would actually end up getting divorced after being remarried for seven years. And this puts the timeline to 1963. And again, she jumps from relationship to relationship. She becomes involved with a man named Dennis Lee Wright. Now, Dennis was a good amount younger than her. He was 22 years old and she was 37 at this point. But Dennis was also abusive and she would end up pregnant with his baby but have a miscarriage, which was rumored to have been due to the physical abuse she went through with him. And then after that, she would end up pregnant again, and this time having the baby, having another son, and this would put her with seven children now. It was also noted that in total, she had six miscarriages throughout her earlier life. It didn't specify which relationships, minus the one I told you before her last child. Shortly after their son was born, Dennis just dipped out on Gertrude and all the kids, and this put her in a shitty spot right away because Dennis was the one supporting the family, and she did take him to court for child support, but that was basically useless. He never paid, but John, the father of her other children, did pay child support for the most-ish, so she had that income coming in, and it was said that was kind of like her main income, pretty much. Besides that, she did, when she could, took odd jobs where she would be like cleaning, doing laundry for neighbors, and then also babysitting, which as we get further into the story, you'll be kind of like appalled she babysat for anybody. After the split, she would live in a home located at 3850 East New York Street with her children and the rent was $55 in Indianapolis. (laughs) I would love that. Thank you. I know, right? $55 for rent? That's crazy. (laughs) And around this time, she had a lot of health problems. She was also asthmatic, but she smoked like a chimney. So there's that. She was also described as like kind of like deteriorating, like just her physical appearance as well. Uh, She was 5'6", but she only weighed about 100 pounds. But to save face, when she talked to people, she swore that her and Dennis did get married. And when she met new people, she would refer to herself as Mrs. Wright. Hmm. Okay. But yeah, but that's a little bit about Gertrude. We'll get back to our timeline now. So, like I said, Lester came looking for the girls, and he found them and ended up at Gertrude's house. So, of course, when they met, she introduced herself as Mrs. Wright. Well, they got to talking about the girls and the mom and all of that, and he was like, yeah, you know, I talked to her about, like, since she's in jail or whatever, and we decided we're gonna make up and blah, blah, blah. We're gonna go back to work when I get her out type of thing. Depending on where you read this, it varies. Some sources said that Gertrude suggested this. Others said Lester kind of asked. And then other ones were like, well, she was kind of flirty and trying to be like on his good side and help him out or some shit. Plus help herself out. I don't know. Long story short, they come to an agreement that the two girls, Sylvia and Jenny, will stay there with her while they go work the circuit for essentially like the state fair or something at this point. And they would be there through November. And Lester and Betty would pay her $20 a week for the girls to stay there. 
and ended up just being like a done deal without any kind of like looking around or anything, which as a parent, I'm like, how the fuck? One, are you going to leave your kid with a stranger? And two, not look where they're going to be living at for fucking months. Like, I don't get it. But okay. Which, if he had, he would have saw that the living conditions there weren't too great. It was said that, quote, Gertrude's home had no stove or microwave. There was only enough beds for half the people in the house. The only things Gertrude kept in her pantry were bread and crackers, and that most of the surfaces in the home were caked thick with dirt and only had enough plates and eating utensils for three people, end quote. So if he had seen this, he probably would have been like, this may not be the best idea. She's got seven kids. Maybe I should just take my own kids, but obviously not because he's trying to, like, dump them off pretty much. That's why I kind of think that even if she suggested it, I think he jumped at it really quick. I know that a lot of times they try to portray it like he's like, oh, I have to talk to Betty or I got to go, like, you know, think about it. I think he jumped at it real quick. Oh, yeah. Because he didn't want the girls with him and it was just like an easier way. There was someone there like, oh, I can pay you to watch my kids. Let's do it. Mm hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. So he leaves and things are good for the first week while they're there. They hang out with the other kids. They go to church with the whole family. And Jenny and Sylvia are super helpful around the house. But then comes the day that Lester and Betty were supposed to pay Gertrude and nothing shows up. It would actually be noted that they were inconsistent or late most of the time with paying her. And this pisses Gertrude off. So much so that she said to the girls, quote, I took care of you two bitches for nothing, end quote. And then she forced them to lie across the bed with their skirts and underwear pulled down and beat them with a quarter inch thick paddle. Then just a couple days after this, Lester and Betty visit the girls on the 14th. This first abuse happens on the 11th. And they they didn't say a word about it to their parents because basically Gertrude threatened them and were like, nope, you're going to keep your fucking mouth shut. So they did. Don't blame them there. And a week later, Sylvia and Jenny were out and they're collecting cans, you know, and bottles so they can get some spending money because they wanted to buy some candy. They come back and Gertrude asks where they got it from. And, you know, they explain. They said, oh, we went to the park, got it out of the trash, took it, cashed it in, whatever. But she insisted that they were lying and shoplifted. So Sylvia is beat again with the paddle. Now, as we move on into the later summer slash kind of back back to school, so like August, more things begin to happen. And this is more specifically mid to late is when the shift is focusing for the abuse on Sylvia alone. Jenny isn't really having anything happen to her with that as, as far as this goes. It's also noted that about August 1st, Paula apparently was like super jealous of Sylvia and began to be abusive towards her as well. She punched her so hard in the jaw that she actually broke her wrist. And doing so, obviously, she had to get a cast. And then later on, she would beat Sylvia with her cast. There's just no fucking words. I don't fucking understand. And Paula's attitude as we get into this is just like horrific. And things are going to get much, much worse. So like I said, I am going to go into the details of what happens with all of this. So if this is something that makes you uncomfortable, just please skip it because it is really bad. So there's this one incident where they had gone to church to this like social barbecue thing. And basically, once they all got home, Gertrude's kids were telling her that Sylvia had eaten disgustingly too much. 
So she got in trouble for that as well. And Gertrude yelled at Sylvia saying she was trying to ruin her, her appearance and like all this stuff. And she actually forced her to eat a hot dog that was loaded with tons of condiments and spices and like all kinds of gross stuff. And it made her throw up. Then she made Sylvia eat that throw up. And around this time, Lester and Betty came for another visit. And again, because of Gertrude's instructions, nothing was said about it. So after this, Sylvia was talking to one of Gertrude's daughters. Her name is Stephanie and Jenny as well, because like like I said, she was always with Jenny. She was talking about this boyfriend or boy that she met when they were out in California with her parents during one of their trips, like one of the ones they actually got to go on. Then Gertrude interrupts and says, she says something like, ever done anything with a boy? And Sylvia was like, I guess so. And she was like, yeah, like we went skating with them and we like we went to the beach because they were like in Southern California and things like that. Other sources about this conversation say that she was saying essentially like she got felt up, but like she was a virgin, like it's not like she had sex with them or anything, but that could be kind of like more of Gertrude's story trying to justify what she did. I'm not too sure on that part, but she was kind of like, okay, whatever. So she continues the conversation with Stephanie and Jenny. She was like, yeah, I like said something like she laid under the covers with the boyfriend. And then Gertrude asks her, why did you do that, Sylvia? And she replies, I don't know. And then like shrugs. Then they kind of like nothing happens right then. But then a few days later, just like out of nowhere, Gertrude says to her, quote, you're certainly getting a big stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby, end quote. And Sylvia thought she was just like fucking around with her. So she's like, oh, yeah, it's getting big. Like, ha ha, I'm gonna have to go on a diet. Like, just, you know, she thought Gertrude was joking. What's interesting is Paula, Gertrude's daughter, was actually three months pregnant at this point. And she was pregnant with a married man's baby. It's like that little fun fact where it's like, Gertrude is sitting there like pumping Sylvia for information about like her innocent like he probably felt her up over her sweater type moment and her daughter's out there doing the nasty with a married person. Mm-hmm. So apparently this set her off and she would say to the girls, she was like, if you do something with a boy, you'll be sure to get pregnant. Then she fucking kicks Sylvia in the below the belt region. After this, Sylvia, of course, because like, oh, my God, who the fuck wants to get kicked in the vagina? Just saying. But anyway, so, of course, like probably like the wind knocked out of her, too. So she's like trying to get a chair to sit down. But Paula decides to knock her off the chair. So she falls to the floor and she yells at her, you ain't fit to sit in a chair. And from this time on out, Sylvia had to ask permission to sit down every time she wanted to. The day after the kicking incident, Sylvia and Jenny went to school and they were ready for some revenge. They were fucking pissed off about this. They started to spread rumors that Stephanie and Paula were having sex with boys for money. And Stephanie would confront her and she ended up punching Sylvia in the face. But apparently after this, Sylvia apologized to her and both girls started crying and they were just like, oh my, like, I think with Stephanie, it was kind of like, oh my God, what the fuck did I just do? You know, that kind of thing. But apparently Stephanie's boyfriend heard about this and his name was Coy Hubbard and he did not like that. So he went over to the house and actually beat Sylvia. During this attack, he slapped her, banged her head against the wall, and 
flipped her backwards onto the floor, like picked her up and just flung her. Like WWE style. Yeah, exactly. And if that wasn't enough, when Gertrude found out about this, she used the paddle again on her. And apparently she liked having someone help her with the abuse stuff. So she encouraged Koi to go ahead and practice his judo that he was doing on Sylvia whenever he felt like it. So not only does Koi do this, but other kids in the neighborhood he was friends with and went to school with did this too. And on top of this, Gertrude and her band of assholes got to Sylvia's friend, Anna. They're like, she's making up all these nasty, malicious rumors about you and you need to teach her a lesson, aka fucking attack her. Then from here, it spread to one of Paula's friends. Her name was Judy. Same thing basically happened. And during the attack with Judy or fight, whatever you want to call it, Gertrude tried getting Jenny in on it to like punch her. And Jenny's like, fuck no, I'm not doing this. So Gertrude, what does she do? She starts fucking wailing on Jenny. And Jenny's like 13 years old. And disabled. Yes, and disabled. And she tried to take it and like maybe she'll stop, but she wouldn't. So Jenny's like, okay, okay, fine. I'll do it. So you stop. So she stopped and she had to punch Sylvia. So while they were there, they actually ended up running into their older sister, Diana, at one of the local parks they went to a lot. And they told her about the abuse. Neither sister actually mentioned, like, exactly where they were staying. And when they were first telling her about this, Diana was kind of like, oh, they must be kind of exaggerating, like, thinking she's just being too strict, like, trying to think of some kind of excuse to, like, not have to stay there type of thing. But they had also seen her another time, and Sylvia said to her, like, I'm hungry, and because also they pretty much stopped feeding her. So Diana gave her a sandwich and one of Gertrude's daughters, her name was Marie, actually saw this and of course went running to mommy. Gertrude, she said she was, quote, engaging in gluttony. And then her and Paula began to choke her and beat on her. Now, if just not that is fr- like this whole thing's just frustrating. But there was other opportunities for Sylvia and Jenny to get help and get the fuck out of there. But pretty much everybody around them fucking failed them. It's so frustrating. So during that summer slash beginning of fall, there was this couple that moved in next door named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. So they had a couple of young kids and Phyllis noticed that like there was always a bunch of kids at Gertrude's house. So, you know, she was like, oh, you know, they were new to the area. They needed a babysitter for the younger kids. She's like, maybe we can figure something out. And then it's like, I'll pay her. So it's like she helps me and I'm helping her type of thing. Which, like, knowing what we know so far, it's like, oh, fuck no, don't fucking do it, Phyllis. But the two families decided to have a barbecue one day to get to know one another. So Sylvia was allowed to attend. She wasn't kept away. And at this time, she it was said that she had a very obvious black eye. And Paula was like, oh, yeah, I was the one who did it. Ha <laughs> ha. And, like, was all proud of beating up Sylvia. Also during this barbecue, she took a like scalding hot cup of water and threw it in Sylvia's face. Phyllis and her husband saw all of this, but they decided to just stay out of it. And if that's not enough, there's another what the fuck. It's down the timeline, but I'm gonna tell you guys about it now. So in like October, Phyllis goes over there because she like needs to borrow some sugar or something. I don't know. She needs to borrow something. They don't say what it is. So she's over there. 
She sees Sylvia again, and she sees that she's super badly beaten. She had a black eye that was swollen shut, and her lips were, like, super, super swollen from obviously getting hit in the face. She also said, like, Sylvia looked like she was wandering in a daze, and... Paula's bitch ass basically was like, oh, let me show you how she got that. And she took off her belt and started like wailing on Sylvia with this belt, just going at it. And basically Phyllis was just like, "Mm, okay, I'm out and left. Like, Jesus fuck. When I first heard that, it was like, this woman is a mother and she sees a child Granted, she's seeing another child hit another child, but, like, it's, it's like, one thing if, like, randomly two siblings get into a fight and you're like, okay, I'm gonna let the parents work it out. But, like, when you see a kid that looks like they've literally been, like, mugged in the street, you would think that a maternal instinct would kick in. And I get it, this was, like, the 60s and it was, like, you just kept to yourself or whatever, but th- that's, like, fuck you, Phyllis. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, like, back up a little bit to, like, September-ish. So, okay, so, like, school was back up and Sylvia was there, things like that. This was before she was, like, super, super badly beaten. So, Sylvia came home one day and told Gertrude she was told she needed to get, like, gym clothes. And Gertrude was like, no, we can't afford it. Like, we can't do it. So, Sylvia would end up stealing the sweatsuit from the school. Gertrude eventually saw she had it and asked her and was like, where'd that come from? Where'd you get the money for that? Da-da-da-da-da. And Sylvia would eventually confess like, okay, okay, I stole it. And of course, as you can guess this theme, that set Gertrude off again. And she started going off on Sylvia about being a prostitute. And she threw her on the ground where she repeatedly kicked her in the vagina again. Then she went back to, like, you know, the shoplifting thing. And she said that she was going to, quote, cure Sylvia of her sticky fingers. So what she did was she burned the tips of each finger with a lit cigarette. After this, because if that's apparently not enough, she whipped her with a belt. Then essentially after this attack happened, all the smokers in the home began putting their cigarettes out on Sylvia as a reminder not to steal. Around October 1st or so, Diana, the older sister that they saw in the park, she had actually came by to see her younger sisters and, you know, wanted to talk with them like she found out where they lived. And Gertrude wouldn't let her come in. She was like, no, your parents said not to let you around them. So bye. Diana's like, what the fuck? So she's like, okay. So she leaves. And then after this, she actually saw Jenny, no Sylvia at this point, at the park and asked like, what the fuck is going on? And she said that she couldn't say anything or she would get in trouble. And then she left. This obviously worried Diana for her sisters, so she called CPS to have them do a well check. Then, again, because, like, this takes a while, like, from when she calls to when they actually show up, it's, like, it's a while. One day, Sylvia's minding her own fucking business and just, you know, doing what she did before, trying to sell, like, recyclables for money and things like that. When she got back, Gertrude was on the prostitute kick again. And for her punishment this time, she took Sylvia into the living room of her home. This one's really bad, guys. She forced her to strip naked in front of not only her sons, but there was, like, a ton of neighborhood boys over at the house because by this point, a bunch of kids were hanging out at their house all the time. And she said if she didn't do it, she would beat Jenny. So Sylvia's not going to let that happen if she can. So she stripped. Gertrude hands her a glass Coke bottle and forces Sylvia to masturbate with it in front of everybody. 
After this, Sylvia became incontinent, which means she can't control her bladder. Like, she was damaged from this, and she would wet herself, basically. And when this happens, Gertrude decides that Sylvia isn't worthy of living upstairs with everybody else anymore, and that she belonged in the basement. Which, in said basement, you know, it's not like a finished basement that's a room or anything like that, so there's no bathroom, no nothing. So Sylvia was forced to go to the bathroom on the floor. Like, she didn't even give her a bucket, nothing. And this is when Gertrude would tell Sylvia she was a, quote, dirty girl and needed to be cleansed. She'd fill up her clawfoot bathtub with, like, scalding, scalding water. And at this point, she would bound Sylvia's wrists and ankle together each and then dunk her in the water that was scalding hot. After the baths, she would then have Paula rub handfuls of salt all over Sylvia's body. My whole brain, like, I just don't understand. It's like you don't truly understand how people could get to this point. Like, at what point did they go, this was acceptable behavior? And that their, like, preservation instinct didn't kick in. Like, because that's the thing I thought about is, like, unless they were planning to kill her all along, how the fuck were they going to explain it at the end of November? Right, exactly. And also, when left in the basement, she was not allowed to have clothes, so she was left naked. And like I mentioned, she rarely ate. And when she was allowed to eat, it was always in some fucked up way. So there was one instance that's noted that happened like around the 22nd of October. They had given her soup, but they didn't give her a spoon or anything. They're like, eat it with your fingers. They also made her clean the basement by, quote, allowing her to eat her own feces. And they eventually did give her a container to go to the bathroom in, but she was only allowed to pee in it. And she was made to drink that. So. During all of this, Gertrude decides to make 14-year-old Ricky Hobbs her, quote, personal assistant when dealing with Sylvia. There's rumors of that there was, like, more going on to that relationship, like she seduced him and they had relations and things like that. But on top of that, I can't believe this is fucking real life. The kids, like her kids, would charge other kids in the neighborhood a nickel to go see Sylvia or to go abuse her or push her down the stairs and all of that. Shortly after being in the basement, uh, the caseworker does come by. Gertrude told the caseworker that she had kicked Sylvia out of the house for being physically unclean and a prostitute and that Sylvia had since run away. Then she had gotten Jenny alone for a second and basically was like, "You, if you tell her the truth, like, I'm going to put you in the basement and start doing this shit to you. So when the social worker talked to Jenny, she was like, yeah, no, my, my sister ran away. And so the social worker's like, okay. She left and she put in their file like they didn't need to go back to that house. And there's other reports saying as well that one of the neighbors, his son went to the same school and he had said, oh, I saw a girl at Gertrude's house that was like covered in sores. So it said that like the school nurse or a public health nurse went by and it was like essentially the same thing that she was like, oh, she ran away. Like she's a really bad influence on my kids and Jenny. So blah, blah, blah. Good riddance. And so they're just like, okay, and leave. So then flash forward to October 21st. Sylvia was brought up from the basement. Gertrude said to her, you can sleep upstairs as long as you don't wet the bed. If you do, you're gone. You're going back to the basement. 
And they actually tied her to the bed, too. So I was like, even if she could tell or control she had to go to the bathroom, like, if she's fucking tied up, how the fuck is she going to go to the bathroom? So you're just a fucking cunt, Gertrude. Fuck you. So, of course, when they went and checked on her the next morning, she had wet the bed because she couldn't control her bladder. One and two, she's tied up. Her punishment this time would be the same Coke bottle thing that happened before. After this, they got a needle, essentially branded her, carved it into her, into her stomach, the quote saying, I am a prostitute and proud of it. Then Gertrude went in on her being like, nobody's going to want you now. Your body's ruined and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And Sylvia's like, it's already done. Like, what What am I supposed to fucking do about this? Like, okay. Like, she didn't really know what to say to her, you know? Then she made Sylvia write this bogus letter saying, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night. They had said they would pay me if I give them something. So I got in the car and they all got what they wanted. And when they finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck in all of her kids. And then after she had her write that, she didn't have her sign it or anything, which when I was reading stuff, everyone's like, what the fuck? That's weird. Yeah, that was the weirdest shit. Because it's like, well, yeah, it's in her handwriting, but who the fuck doesn't sign a letter? Right, exactly. So, like, the plan was to explain now that she had this in her stomach, that was what was going to be given to her parents. So, over the next few days, she would be continuously abused and beat. On October 25th, Sylvia actually overheard a conversation with the family, and they were actually planning to essentially drop her off in the woods buy a shed and let her die. And she's like, oh, fuck no. Fuck this. So she tried to run out the front door, but she is very weak from all of her injuries and being severely malnourished at this point. So obviously she wasn't moving too quickly. And Gertrude snatched her up. It was said that she was given either toaster crackers at this time, but of course she was extremely dehydrated, so she couldn't even eat it. Gertrude was like shoving the food into her face or into her mouth and then takes a curtain rod and beats her with it so bad that it bends in a 90 degree angle. And then Koi decides, oh, that's not enough. So he takes the rod and he hits her until she's unconscious and then they take her back to the basement. That evening, she is, like, screaming, trying to get help, hitting the walls with, like, a shovel type of thing, trying to, you know, make noise to get attention. And fucking Phyllis and them. So the police, they get told later that they heard a, quote, desperate commotion. She did identify it was the basement of that house but that the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., so she decided to not inform the police about the disturbance. I would have been more suspicious that there was a noise and then the noise stopped. Like, why did the noise stop? Yeah, that's because uh, they actually took the shovel and hit her with it, so that's probably why she stopped. By the morning of October 26th, Sylvia, at this point, was in really bad shape. She couldn't speak or really move properly with her arms and stuff. She was having trouble, like, functioning. Gertrude took her into the kitchen and tried to feed her a donut in a glass of milk. Because Sylvia couldn't do anything, you know, she couldn't even lift the glass of milk to drink it, Gertrude threw her on the floor and had her taken back down to the basement. 
And at this point, she is just like obviously totally out of it. Like she's moaning and mumbling just like random things. And of course, Paula's down there, fucking Paula, trying to like goad her on and is like, oh, say the alphabet and da 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 da. And apparently she could only get through the first four letters. And because she couldn't get past that, Paula had said that she was going to inflict a long jump on her. I don't know what that really means, but hurt her, obviously. And then also during this, Sylvia had defecated on herself. And so she told her to clean herself up. Then that afternoon, all the kids came to the basement and it was said that she was like doing really like jerky movements and stuff and she was like really confused and she was like pointing at them as she recognized them and saying you're Ricky and you're Gertie. Gertrude started yelling at her shut up you know who I am and they had given her a rotten pear. She said she started feeling looseness in her teeth and Jenny was down there and she said to her quote don't you remember Sylvia your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. At that point, Jenny had to leave. She was doing some gardening chores for a neighbor just to earn some money. So she like she had to go. She had to go work. And then apparently John Jr. thought it'd be a great idea to wash Sylvia. He brought in a garden hose that he had gotten from a kid named Randy Lepper, I believe is his last name. And Sylvia tried to escape, but she ended up collapsing before she even reached the stairs. And at this point, Gertie then stomped on her head and then stood on her for like a good amount of time. After all of this, Stephanie was like, okay, I'm going to give her a warm bath or whatever. But when they got her up there and whatnot, they realized she had stopped breathing. When Stephanie realized this, she tried to perform CPR. All while Gertrude is screaming how Sylvia's faking it and she's fine and blah, blah, blah and all this shit. And this was all happening on October 26th. And... Once Gertrude, like, actually accepted and realized she was dead, she told Ricky to go to a payphone, because they didn't have a phone, to call 911. And that is where I am going to hand it off to Jessica now. Oakley Doakley. So after Ricky runs and makes the 911 call, the police arrive about 6.30 p.m., which is, like, kind of, like, late in the day. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is it's, like, you can see now, like, how long this particular day they had been, like, torturing her because that's all they were doing. Yeah. This day was, like, fucking with her. As soon as they got there, Gertie took the officers to see Sylvia and they could tell, like, right away how emaciated she was. This wasn't, like, a runaway girl. This had been someone who had been, like, systematically starved for quite some time. They could also tell that she, like, her injuries, just by, like, looking at her, they could tell that she had been, like, beaten so bad and that her body had been so mutilated. I mean, it was, like, really obvious that this wasn't, like, she ran away for a couple days and came back like this. So basically, when the officers came to see Sylvia, she was lying on the mattress that she had, like, already soiled. And Gertie basically was like, look, here's the letter that she had. She came home. Basically, Gertie's story was that she had run away 
with these boys and had come home like a day or so before. And she was like clutching the letter and she was naked. And that, you know, Gertie was trying to tell the police, like, I tried to help her. I was trying to like doctor her wounds for like an hour or so before she died. Like I was putting rubbing alcohol on the wounds to like provide first aid. And I'm like, if some, okay, like I can like only imagine what she looked like. I didn't want to look, I think there are pictures out there, but I didn't want to actually like find them. Yeah. And it's like, if I had seen that child, I would have been like, no, the hospital. Right. Exactly. To the hospital we go. Yeah. Right. Not let me lay you down here and let's, you know, but that's not Gertrude. She like basically was saying how Sylvia had run away with the teenage boys. Now, the police are like, this seems a little fishy. Something stinks. Something, this is very suspect. So they start asking questions. And the first person they ask questions to, other than like Gertrude, who they've been talking to, is Paula, who is ironically clutching a Bible. Of course she is, fucking bitch. Right. And she basically said to the police, like, Paula's stupid as fuck. I want to point that out. Like, she basically (laughs) told the police that... Sylvia was meant to die, like her death was meant to happen, and that she turned to Jenny in front of the police and said, if you want to live with us, either we will treat you like your sister or we won't treat you like your sister. It was like one of those like weird quotes, you know. Yeah. See, that's what's kind of also like frustrating with this is like stuff isn't clear so it's like you have to read multiple things multiple times so i think that's also what made this research so hard because i'm like oh my god i know these horrible things they did to her i don't need to keep reading it but it would be like for instance like with my stuff it was like the reporting like when the people would go over there they were like oh the nurse went over there early on and then others were like no it's when she was in the basement like i'm just like jesus i have a feeling that it was happening like multiple times oh yeah Mm mm-hmm You know, I I have a feeling that, like, some people tried, but for the majority of it, I just don't think people cared. Or not that they didn't care. I don't want to say that they didn't care. It's the bystander thing again. Right. Like, they just don't, like, we talked about it, you know, because at this point, the stabby I did for the patron select of the James Bulger case, it's more convenient for them to look away than it is to get involved. Because if you get involved, especially nowadays, like, my husband likes to point this out, like, you know, he did, like, those campus cop things when he was in college to, like, help pay for college and whatnot. And he would say that a lot of times they tell you when you're out in the world and you're a civilian, don't help other people. Because let's say that, like, you go and are performing CPR on someone and you break their ribs. They could sue you, even though, like, you saved their life. Like, someone can see you. So, like, my husband has this very, like, warped view of, like, helping people. And I'm, like, the complete opposite. Like, I'd be like, fucking sue me then. I saved your fucking life, you dumb bitch. Would you rather me not perform CPR and you be dead? But now you're alive with a broken rib that will heal. Sorry. This case gets me heated. I'm sorry, guys. No. No, no, you're fine. I think I'd be worried if it didn't. <laughs> right. Like, if I was like, this was an easy case. No, it was... Ugh. It was a hard case to, like, try to stay focused on. Yeah. I did, like, everything in my power to not focus on this case. So, the police decide they should probably talk to Jenny because, you know, sister... I have a feeling that between the time that, like, Ricky left the house and the police got there, Gertie had every one of those kids, like, this is what you're saying. This is what we're doing. This is what we're thinking. This is the story we're telling. Right. Oh, yeah, she did. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so at first, Jenny is reciting the story Gertie told her to tell. And 
at one point in time, I think like Gertie may have left the room or the police may have like separated them. And Jenny basically whispers to a cop, like, if you get me out of here, I'll tell you everything. And they were like, okay, so we need to like take Jenny downtown. Like we need to go. Like we need to get the fuck away. Mm -hmm. So they do that. And then she goes with them. And then she tells them everything that Tara just told us. Like the whole story. And the formal statement was given. And then the officers were like, we have to go fucking get this bitch. And they went and they arrested her. They arrested Gertrude, Paula, Stephen, John Jr. And they were all suspects of her murder. And this happened within like hours we're not talking like days like i will say one thing like the police in this case like when they actually hit the ground like they were like aggressive they were like yes we will get these people obviously the the statement that jenny had given also coy hubbard who was stephanie's boyfriend she gave testimony that he had been involved and then also that ricky hobbs had been involved and they were also arrested and charged with the same thing that the the family was so basically like gertrude has what seven kids and three of her four children are being charged with murder as well as her. This family of eight is like halvesy in it right now. So the oldest children, along with Coy Hubbard, was put into like juvenile hall, the juvenile detention centers. And then the younger children, which I believe was like John and Ricky, they were put into the Indianapolis Children's Guardian Home, which I feel like is probably a less bougie option of what they put the boys in for the James case. This is where they were being held and they were being held without bail, which like fucking good. Of course, right away, Gertie is like, I have no knowledge of this shit. Then it turned into I did not participate. I knew that there was stuff going on, but like I was tired and I like I have seven kids of my own plus these other two. So I have nine kids I'm taking care of plus a babysit. Like I'm just too tired and frail. I didn't participate in anything. It was all the kids, especially Paula and Koi. Talk about a woman who has no motherly instinct. Like bitch ratted out her children so fast. She said that Paula did most of the damage to Sylvia, which is kind of true in a sense. I mean, here's the thing. At what point, like, if Sylvia lived in my home and she started looking the way she was looking and you just didn't know, you would be like, what the fuck is happening? And Coy, he was violent. He just had a violent nature and I think he really liked it. And I think that Gertie was using the kids as kind of a, how do I say this? Like, if I don't physically beat her, but he does... I can't be at fault. It's his fault. And so she was like trying to separate. Then Gertie went on to like admit that she forced Sylvia to sleep in the basement on three separate occasions only because she wet the bed and that she didn't want to have to like deal with the cleanup of that. And like, yeah, she knew that was bad. But like at the same time, like if you were tired and had nine kids to take care of, why the fuck would you want to clean up the bed? And I could understand if there was like maybe a cot like in the basement that had like a plastic mattress on it like a crib mattress or something that you could like easily clean but that's not the case no as they start asking more and more questions she starts becoming very evasive she doesn't want to answer them and basically was like look sylvia had issues she was incontinent she had mental issues so this is all like i didn't do this this was just her now paula I think there was something like legitimately chemically wrong with Paula. I really do. Because I think, is it the psychopath that like does things without feelings or is it sociopath? I don't know. 
It's one of those. Mm -hmm. She's the one that has, like, doesn't, like, get, like, people have feelings at all. Right. Because she, it was said that she lacked remorse and she basically signed a statement admitting to repeatedly beating Sylvia. And she said on the backside or her butt, you know, with her mother's belt, she admitted to breaking her wrist on her jaw. She admitted to all of these things that she had done. She pushing her down the stairs two or three times, maybe, and then giving her a black eye. John Jr. admitted to spanking Sylvia on occasion and said that most of the time he used his fist to abuse her. He admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions and adding that his mother had repeatedly burned the children with cigarettes. Okay, I want to take like a quick second here and talk about why these kids would just go along with their mom. Because like, that's the other thing. Why would these kids do this? I would be scared that my mom would do it to me. And I think that's exactly the reasons why they were doing it is there was probably less abuse, if that makes sense. Like there probably was burning and spankings and hittings in their home. But now Sylvia is the one that's come in and is taking all the negative attention away from these kids. You look at Paula, what she's dealing with, like she's pregnant with a married man. Like this is 1965, that that's not acceptable. And she was 17. Like She was a minor. And, you know, she got herself in this situation. And I think Gertrude just needed an out. Like, I know this sounds so fucked up, but it's like she needed an outlet for that stress. And she was really fucked up and had mental issues. And I think years and years of abuse over and over. And the fact that she accepted it, she's like, you know, those like statistics like where it's like only like 8% of victims who are abused, abused. Like she's the fucking 8%. Like she's the one who got abused and went, oh, this is something you can do to another human. Now, for the most part, everyone was tried separately, right? Except for it was weird because like Ricky and Gertrude, they had their hearings together like November 1st of that year. So like the, her death happened on the 26th and Ricky and Gertrude, they were arraigned real fucking quick. Also to note that there were some people in the neighborhood, some kids in the neighborhood who also got arrested for this. Like they didn't go unpunished. It was said Michael Monroe, Ricky Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke and Anna Siskiyou. And they were arrested on the 29th. So it wasn't like these people just got away with it. Good. Right. All the charges that they got were because they had so many injuries. There was like so much shit. So her official autopsy said that she suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body. In addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. That's like so many wounds. Right? Oh, my God. And that's, like, active wounds. Yeah. We're not talking, like, they went inside and saw that, like, she had shit. Like, this isn't, like, bones looking at the inside of a person and going, okay, this is what happened. No, like, they're saying, like, these were active wounds on her body. Yeah. And it was said that they varied in location, nature, severity, and actual stages of healing. Because that was, like, another reason the police, when they looked at her, looked at her body, they knew this wasn't, like, she had run away, gotten beat up two days ago, and then this was her injuries that she's dying from. It was because, like, if you if you know bruises at all, like, I bruise easy. <laughs> Oh, me too. Right. So it's like you can kind of see like when it starts going out, it's getting yellow and like the purple is kind of like really small in the middle. Like that's an old bruise. Now, if we're talking like a huge, deep purple, black bruise, like that's what you would think. You would think that there wouldn't be like there'd be like scat, like fresh scabbing, not like scabs that some scabs were healed. Some scabs weren't. Yeah. Her injuries included, again, 
we heard this. So it's they included burns, severe bruising, extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was so swollen, it was swollen shut. Oh, my God. Like, that is extremely violent. Yeah. And Tara mentioned earlier that she was still said to be a virgin because when they, in fact, went in and looked in there in the canal, her hymen was still intact. That's like the one, like the one thing that like I kept waiting for was someone to be like, they raped her. And I was like getting anxious every time like I would listen to videos or I'd read an article. And then when that didn't come, I mean, the Coke bottle thing is like horrific, but like, you know. Yeah. And this is also because like at the time, Gertie was still telling people that like she was pregnant. Like, oh, she's a bad influence. She's got pregnant. She ran off, blah, blah, blah. She's three months pregnant, which is exactly like the pregnancy of her daughter. Also, like the fact that she's been telling everyone that she's a prostitute and very promiscuous and that this would discount that letter because like unless they were just not wanting, you know, vagina. I'm sorry, but like what teenage boy is taking a girl out to have sex and not have sex? Like especially if that's the agreement, like we're going to go have sex. Right. And other injuries that they found on her body is that her fingernails actually were like broken off backwards. So like the force in which they were like shoved. She had like layers of her skin on her face, her breasts, her neck, her knees had been like peeled. Mm. I don't know if it's like from the beating. Like I know that Mm -hmm. like when I've watched like boxing movies, like you can see that like some hits take skin. So I don't, I don't know what that was. They also think that when she was dying, she bit her lip. And it was, like, partly, like, severed in sections from her face. So, like, she died violently. So the coroner, Dr. Arthur Cabell, said that she died from a subdermal hematoma due to receiving blows to her right temple, which she basically got hit in the head and bled out in her head. Which, I mean, if they hit her with a fucking shovel, like... Well, that and fucking Gertrude's just standing on her fucking head. (sighs) Gertrude. Hope she's burning nicely. Oh, me too. Me fucking too. Everyone was just, like, in fucking shock of, like, the degree this girl was, like, in there. Like, they were like, how can this be her? Like, it's crazy. And they could tell that she had been bathed and stuff like that. So basically, like, they think that they bathed her even after she was dead. Because, and this is, I'm reading this, it says, Dr. Gabelle did note that Sylvia had been recently bathed, possibly after death, and that the act could have hastened the loss of body temperature and thus speeding up onset rigor mortis. So... That's fucked up and crazy. It is. Like, that's legit, like, crazy-ass shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, Sylvia was laid to rest on October 29th. The service was performed by Dr. Reverend Lewis Gibson, and there were more than 100 mourners there in attendance. And I'm going to just say this. If fucking Phyllis was there, I hope somebody snatched that bitch, like, and smacked her in the face. Like, I don't promote violence, but, like, there's some people that just need a good old fucking, like, what the fuck are you doing, smack? Yeah, seriously. And here's the, like, the weird thing is that, like, she had an open casket (gasps) ceremony. Oh. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So Sylvia was laid to rest in the Oak Hill Cemetery. She had a 14-vehicle procession to drive her to the funeral. And her headstone is inscribed with the words of our darling daughter. Now, the one thing I find it interesting is, like, during this time, you don't hear a lot about what her parents were doing. No. Like, at all. It's like zip. I'm assuming that they got called and they were there. But, like, I don't fucking know. Like, Yeah. I cannot specify, like, what her parents were doing. It's actually, like, very little is known, I think, about her parents after her death. 
Because, like, Jenny, spoilers, doesn't go live with them. Like, fuck that. She lives with, like, the, I think the DA, mm. from what I remember. I hope that's the fact and not just the movie fact, because that's, like, right now I haven't read that far in my notes. Did I get confused? <laughs> Did I get confused? Okay. So, indictments happened on December 30th of 1965 in Marin County. A grand jury returned first-degree murder charges for Gertrude and two of her oldest children, Paula and John. Stephanie was arrested originally, but I think they kind of like, I think Stephanie also like took a plea deal, (laughs) but we'll get there. And then Richard Hobbs, so Ricky Hobbs and Coy Hubbard were also indicted on the same day. All were charged with repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, or otherwise inflicted accumulation of fatal injuries to Sylvia Likens with premeditated malice. So those were like their charges. So three weeks prior to this, Stephanie had been released from custody on a writ of habeas corpus bond. Basically, her attorney was like, you have no proof that she actually was in support of any of this because like Tara said, she immediately tried to perform CPR. And if she's living in a house where they're doing this to her, like, I would think, like, they could do it to me. And then Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and the other individuals for the abusing and the murder. Paula, who fucking bitch. So Paula had basically like talked to a psychologist and said that Sylvia had become withdrawn and become very negative and that she was refusing to eat and actually showed no response to pain, which by the way, like if you cry well, like a lot, like a lot of water comes out your eyeballs, that means you have hydration. And if you are very dehydrated, you can't cry because like your body needs every fucking ounce of water and it's not going to give it up for this. And that was like one of the things that they kept saying is like they were like, well, she never cried. Well, it's because she fucking couldn't. And I mean, especially like if you're drinking your own pee at some point, it's just like acid because you get all of the water out of it. So the trial Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So the trial for Gertrude, her children, Paula and John and Ricky Hobbs and Coy began on April 18th, 1966. The trial is just like, I'm going to keep this part short because it's really just a bunch of fucking nonsense. Basically, like the attorneys get up and then Gertrude throws her kids under the bus. Her kids kind of tell the truth because it's like they're taught not to lie. So they tell the truth, but be like, my mom did this. And I don't know. It was crazy. Like there's sometimes I'm just like, how did this fucking happen? Right. Now, there was a testimony from a deputy coroner by the name of Charles Ellis, and he testified on April 29th that the intense pain that Sylvia had suffered, like especially with like her nails being broken backwards, the pain would have been like immeasurable. Yeah. Like, it was crazy. He also testified that she probably was in an acute state of shock for two or three days prior to her death, and that she'd been in too advanced of a state of shock to offer any resistance to any form of, like, treatment she would have been given in her final hour. So, like, when she's, like, pointing at the guys being like, you're Ricky, you're Gertie, you're this, you're Paula. Like, this is just, like, I think synopsis, like, her brain is just, like, firing. It's the best it could do. And then Gertie's fucking, like, stomping on her. You would think that, a like, a person would, like, fight back or, like, try to move. But, like, she literally couldn't. He did say that, like, her genitalia was very swollen. But her body did not show any signs of, like, sexual molestation or rape or anything of that nature. 
So then Jenny would testify, right? Like she sat there and listened to all of the fucking other people talk. And then she testified. She testified for two days and she had to testify against all five defendants. So she had to like repeatedly answer the same questions about each person. Like, did you see Gertie do this? Did you see Coy do this? Did you see Paula do this? Did you see John do this? Did you see Ricky do this? They had to ask her. And imagine like at this point, like she's 14. She's like lived through this with her sister and now has to recant all of this in court fucking five times. It's insane. So she testified that basically it had started about two weeks after they entered into the house. Like Tara said, it was like, it didn't start out. Like the way I look at it is like, I was the whole time I was thinking this. The second that like the bottle got involved, that was the moment in which there was no return. They were going to have to kill her because everything else could just be chalked up to like really bad parenting skills. You know, like, oh, I let the kids beat on each other. Oh, you know, I get angry. And in the 60s, there wasn't this, like, massive, like, take care of your kid thing. Like, you know, people were leaving their kids with people, apparently. Jenny got very emotional throughout this. She would say that, like, you know, she watched, like, the abuse escalate. She basically had to tell the jury she finally understood why her sister never cried, which is because she was dehydrated. And then she burst into tears, recalling that Sylvia had said to her, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. Can you imagine being 13 and watching this happen, but also be like, shit, she gonna die? The interesting thing about it is, is that like the other neighborhood kids also testified in this case as well. And a lot of Jenny's stories corroborated with what they were saying because they also were like, they said, yes, we did this. And one of the things that is like really interesting is that they, they didn't acknowledge that it was wrong. Like at the time it was happening. Like I think upon reflection, they were like, shit, what we did killed someone. It's like when you sit back and you think, like, how could this happen? Like, mob mentality is insane. That's why, like, you go back to the line from Men in Black, like, a person is smart, but people are stupid. Because you get a bunch of people together and the strongest personality is going to win out. And so, like, Randy Lepers, who Tara and I talked about earlier, he actually corroborated a lot of the story that was being told and basically said, like, he had done these things anywhere between 10 and 40 times. And he's apparently smirked when he said it. Little motherfucker. You can burn too, bitch. Mm -hmm. So after all of this happened and everyone had testified, Gertie got up, right? She's the last person to testify. And again, she denies that she's responsible for the abuse. She says it was her children, that they did it, the neighborhood kids. She just was like, it was such a madhouse because she had like all of these fucking kids in there and she just couldn't handle it. And at one point I'd be like, bitch, you were being paid $20 a week to watch other people's kids. At what point if you couldn't handle it, did you not go, I can't watch these kids anymore? Like go the fuck away. Right, exactly. Because it's like $20 then is a hundred and about 160 now gotcha also diana showed up like there's so much right i had to ask this question because like i knew like i knew that but like i didn't know that because like again this is like where sources get weird because like some sources say that diana was actually like in foster care like she wasn't she hadn't like yeah i don't know i watched i was watching a video and this girl was like she was in foster care and like no she had been in foster care and then was adopted and that her adopted parents said that she couldn't talk to them because she wasn't like part of her adoption was that she couldn't contact her other family so she couldn't help out her siblings that when Sylvia got in trouble for eating the sandwich, she had like thought, oh, well, that's what happened. 
And I'm like, that seems weird because she was definitely old and married, <laughs> older and married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and had children. And it's like, if that's the thought, like, if they were going to the same neighborhood park, why the fuck did her parents not seek her out and be like, can you watch your sisters? We'll pay you. That was my thought. Because, like, it was crazy because at first I was like, when I was reading about it, they didn't really mention her. And it was like, yep, took the boys. And then, you know, Jenny and Sylvia were at grandma's house. And I'm like, where the fuck is Diana? And then, like, other places I found that. So I'm like, that's always my thing. I was like, maybe, I mean, we don't know. But I was like, maybe she had a baby. I don't know. Or it was just like, oh, they're already here. So, like, t- I think it is what basically you said. Oh, they're already here at this lady's house. Let me just fucking leave them and dip because this is the easiest thing to do. Right, right. That whole, like, Diana thing, like, still haunts me. And I bet it haunted her, like, later in life, uh, like, after this happened. I bet she was like, why the fuck didn't anyone, like, ask me to watch the kids? I'm their sister. Right. So the defense did call unexpected person that you wouldn't think. They end up calling Marie, which is, like, one of the younger sisters. And she basically broke it down. There's, like, the rumor that she said, like, forgive me, Jesus, or something like that. Yeah. And then just, like, broke it down, admitted to everything that she did. She admitted to the whole, like, carving the needle into her abdomen and that Ricky had done it. She testified that her mother just didn't give a shit. Marie came through for Sylvia in the end. Like, she basically, like, fucked over her own family and was like, no, my family is scum. They did this. I never found it anywhere, but, like... I always wondered if, like, she got psychological help between, like, the time that happened and then, like, the trial. And then so she was like, oh, I see what the fuck this was. She told the story, like, how Gertrude would, like, sit in her chair and crochet and watch, like, the neighborhood girls, like, attack Sylvia. And, like, that's, like, the ultimate, like, not giving a fuck. Like, I'm gonna do a craft over here. Jesus, yeah. So, on May 19th, 1966... Gertrude and her son, John, would be convicted of Sylvia's murder. The trial in total lasted 17 days, and after only eight hours of deliberation, a panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder and recommended life in prison. Paula was found to be guilty of second-degree murder, and Ricky, Coy, and John were all found guilty of manslaughter. And it said that at that moment, like, Gertrude and her kids burst out into tears and tried to, like, console each other. And apparently, like, Ricky and Coy were just like, whatever. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula were both formally sentenced to life imprisonment. The same day, Ricky, Coy, and John were sentenced to 2 to 21 years. Um, That's just a fucking random thing, but, like, cool. Jeez. In 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Paula and Gertrude, and they stood trial again. It's kind of what's happening right now with Scott Peterson. Like, they reverse it so that you can go back to court. Like, that's what I know people don't understand. Like, people think that, like, Scott right now is, like, he could go free. It's like, no, he has to go back to court and, like, they have to have another trial, essentially. And they had, like, a change of venue, and they separated their trials because they thought that this had something to do with it because, like, especially, like, with Paula being so, quote-unquote, young, being, like, 17 and a minor, and obviously, like, she was pregnant and, like, maybe not completely all there at the time. They figured if they moved them apart, there might be some distance, which was true because Paula opted to plead to manslaughter when she faced her retrial, and she got between two and 20 years imprisonment and... By the way, she also tried to escape twice from prison in 1971. Oh, okay. Jeez. 
Mm-hmm. But she was released in 1972. Shut up. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding, girl. We're going to talk about them and we're going to talk about her in a little bit. Because <gasps> um, she went on to live a life. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, get married, have a kid, get a job type shit. Oh, okay. Yes. Gertrude, however, was convicted of first degree murder again and was sentenced to life in prison because the first time she was, it was like life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. This time they dropped the parole. Oh my God. Mind you, during this time, it was said that Gertrude became a model prisoner. Like she was perfect. In fact, she was known as the mom or her nickname was mom in prison. Of course. I know. Like somehow happened. The doors went clink and bitch was like, I'm a mom. Oh, fuck that. Fuck you, Gertrude. You know, before it's like, let me torture a 16 year old. But I'm going to go to prison and mom people. I don't get it, Gertie. Like you're a fucking asshole. We hate your guts. Yes. So she comes up for parole in 1985 and she goes before the parole board and like I want to say, like, 4,100 people signed, like, a petition to get her not to be released. Uh, yeah, they fucking paroled her ass in 1985. Oh, So she only served 20 years in prison for viciously torturing, starving, and murdering a 16-year-old. And then she changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, which is a like a combination of her name. And then she was a devout Christian. But she would not enjoy her freedom for very long because bitch would die five years later. Fucking bye. Fucking bye. So Jenny was like super pissed. She's like, what the fuck? Why is this woman out of prison? And they like, they protested it and it just, it didn't help. Two anti-crime groups traveled there to like stop the parole. Still didn't happen. Oh, when I said 41, I meant 40,000 signatures of just citizens in Indiana signed a petition. But they still fucking like, basically it came down to the fact that like what they do to parole you, which is that you have to show remorse and that you've changed. If you look at that, the fact that for the last 20 years, she's been mom and a model prisoner, people are like, oh, she's changed. So after she was released from prison, she moved to Iowa. Sorry, Iowa. Right. She never accepted full responsibility for it. It said that she was unable to recall precise things that happened during that time. And that basically at this point in time, she was saying that she, because she had asthma and she was like self-medicating, that that's what it was. Like she was in a drug estate, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then she died of lung cancer on June 16th, 1990 at the age of 61. I really hope that it was prolonged. Now... Let's talk about Paula. So she got a new identity. Like, that's the first thing you should know. She got paroled. So she got a new identity. And she actually started as, like, a janitor at a school. And then she worked her way up to being a classroom aide. And then became a school counselor. Shut up. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. For 14 years. Because she had changed her name to Paula Pace. And had been, like, basically lied on her application. So (laughs) this is how like long this happened after, right? In 2012, which is after both movies came out that this case is based on. Yeah. The school discovered her true identity. (gasps) She'd been like employed, right? And they were like, bitch, bye. Get the fuck out. Good. Because she lied. She also relocated at that point to Iowa and she is married with two children. And the baby girl that she was pregnant with in 1966, she gave up for adoption, but she named her Gertrude. Ew. Ugh. Right. 
So let's talk about Ricky for a second, because Ricky didn't stay in prison very long as well, but that wasn't his fault. He died at the age of 21 in 1972 from lung cancer. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Coy actually got released in 1968, but don't you worry, the dude would live a life of crime. And basically be in and out of jail a lot. In fact, in 1977, he was charged with the murder of two men. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, Coy did not. Coy was not a good person. Yeah. Yeah. He was acquitted of those charges. And then in two, in January of 2007, after the movie, which I'm going to talk about in a second, The American Crime, uh, he got fired from his job and then died of a heart attack at the age of 56. John also got out of prison. He got out on February 27th, 1968, which is the same day Koi got out. And he lived with an obscure um, relative and started using the name John Blake. And then he became a lay minister and would host, like, counseling sessions for, like, children of divorced parents. I mean, I guess he would know what goes really fucking wrong in those situations. True. The moral of this story is, is like, if you were involved with this, you got your comeuppance somehow. A lot of people died, like young. Mm -hmm. Their friend, Anna, basically all the charges were dropped on all the neighborhood kids because I think they were just trying to go after the big fish, like the actual people who killed her. Yeah. But she died at the age of 44. Wow. Mm -hmm. From what, does it say? No. Mm. And then remember our friend Randy, he also died young. He died on November 14th, 2010 at the age of 56. Sounds like they got their karma. I know. It was like the karma gods were like, we getting everyone. Just pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it took a while for some of them, but you know, he, they're busy. <laughs> um, Jenny would later marry and she has a couple of children and she died of like this literally she had a heart attack on June 23rd, 2004 at the age of 54, which is just really sad. Yeah. I do want to say one really fun thing about Jenny. Like girl was funny in my opinion. So she died in 2004, Jenny. And basically in 1990, Gertrude died. And so when she, when Jenny read the newspaper that basically talked about the obituary, she's like, some good news. Damn old Gertrude died. Ha ha. I'm happy about that. I'm like, <laughs> I fucking love Jenny. Oh, that's funny. Elizabeth and Lester would die separately. One in 1998, one in 2013. And before this, Jenny would say that like nobody should blame the parents for placing her and Sylvia with Gertrude. All that they had done was trust Gertrude's promise to actually take care of them while they were traveling which is weird yeah it's just a different time i guess yes so let's talk about movies real quick because two movies came out in the same fucking year mind you so i was like god damn right they both came out in 2007 so i'm going to talk about the one that's like when i say loosely based i mean like loosely based on this one it's the girl next door it came out in 2007 it was directed by gregory wilson And when I say loosely based, like, yes, there's an abusive older woman who allows children to abuse her, but they actually, like, have sexual assault in this one. And it's, like, weird, like, her parents aren't off on a carnival. They died. Ruth, who's supposed to be Gertrude, is actually their aunt. And 
they like tie her up in the basement naked and like make her stand up books. One really interesting thing is the <laughs> I don't know if you watched the um the Marvelous Mrs. Navel. Have you seen that show? Mm-mm. It's funny, you should watch it. The husband Joel, so if anyone listens, he's in this movie but as a kid, and it's like really inappropriate because like they play this game. They what they do is they blindfold a kid and they're playing like hide and go seek in the woods. And if you don't catch anyone, you have to like confess essentially to not be it. And like he asked his sister if she's sucked any dick. The fuck? Right. And it wasn't just like, have you sucked a dick? It was like, have you sucked any long pussy pounding dick? Ew. Like, I have brothers. Never have my brothers ever asked me that question. So this is based off of this case, but Jack Ketchum wrote a book called The Girl Next Door, and it was based off of this. It came out on October 3rd, 2007. It's 91 minutes. It's on Stars Home Entertainment, apparently. I would give this a out of because I wouldn't watch it. It's like literally like stupidness. The only cute thing is at the end when she's dying. Cause like, I know this sounds so fucked up, but like there's a boy next door who like likes her and he's young and she paints him a picture, which is cute. And like everything like that. And it's like, basically like this whole thing is like a flashback from him. Cause like he's older when this is happening. And when Meg is like laying there dying, he lays with her because, like, he basically tried to save her, but, like, they caught her because she tried to go back for her sister. Mm. It's a lot. Like, this this movie is a lot. I would not recommend watching it. Gotcha. If you really want to watch a movie based on this, you can watch American Crime because, like, <laughs> Tara and I were having this conversation. She's like, I watched it and it's not really, like, the thing. But I'm like, it's more like the story than this one. Yeah, 100%. So this movie has like a huge cast in it i was really fucking shocked with it Mm -hmm. first and foremost heavy hitter elliot page is in this movie love them god damn yes love them when i watched this it really reminded me like i want to go back and watch hard candy again i thought the same thing that was a crazy intense movie and they were really young because like i don't know how old they are but they were really young yeah really young yeah like such a good actor for sure holy shit that movie i remember the first time we watched that movie and how mind fucked we both were we were just sitting there like what the fuck just happened (laughs) they didn't cut his balls off (laughs) okay yeah if you've not watched that movie do it 100 percent. elliot page was definitely a younger teen oh yeah and fucking killed that role for sure totally destroyed. I watched that and I was mesmerized by the commitment they put into it because that had to be so hard for them. Right. Oh my god. Yes. Okay. We'll quit fan and girling. <laughs> Next one. Haley McFarland plays Jenny. Romy Rosemont made me happy because she plays Betty. And I'm like, oh, it's Finn's mom. And then I had like a moment of sadness because then I started thinking about like Corey had died and everything. So I was like, oh, it's fucked up. Yeah. Catherine Keener plays Gertrude and she does fantastic work. Oh, yeah. Ari Grainer is in this movie. And at first I was like, I like recognized her, but like I couldn't put it. She's actually in a lot. <laughs> she was actually in another movie with Elliot. She's in Whip It. Oh, okay. I haven't watched that one in a long time. Uh, me either. Okay. So if you don't watch a lot of movies, but you watch like some pop culture movies, think of the movie The Babysitter with Jonah Hill. She plays the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. James fucking Franco is in this movie. 
movie, he plays essentially the the storyline changes in the fact that like Dennis, they call him Andy in this movie. He basically is still around, but like total deadbeat. Like he comes around a lot and asks her for money. There's a kid who plays Teddy, who I'm assuming is Randy in real life, which is played by Michael Walsh, which I was like, ah, it's Mike from Twilight. That's, that's kind of how this movie is. It's just like, it's a lot of heavy hitting and there's a lot of, you'll watch it and recognize faces in it. And I thought it was a good movie. Like, if you don't really want to know all the fucking crazy shit that happens. Well, yeah, know it now by listening to this. Well, yeah. But <laughs> if you don't want to watch it happen, this yeah. is an, this is a good movie to watch. Yeah. I honestly didn't think it was that. I didn't think it was bad. I think it was a lighter depictment of it. Obviously, they change things. Mm-hmm. I liked the end of it. Paula, like, helps Sylvia escape and goes off and finds the parents at the carnival and brings them back to the house and they go get Jenny. But the real truth is, is that Sylvia dies. And this is what her mind has made up to kind of handle that situation. And I thought it was beautiful because it meant that Sylvia died with peace. The cops come, they take Jenny. One of the things, oh, I didn't even mention, how the fuck did I not mention this? Ricky Hobbs is played by Evan Peters, who is like, you know, the bad boy of horror shit. And I literally was dying because I looked at a picture of the real Ricky Hobbs and Evan Peters packed on some weight for this role. Mm -hmm. And he looks so much like him. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) I was like, oh God. I looked at a picture of him and like Gertie going into court and then I was watching the movie at the same time. And I'm like, dear God, Evan Peters, you are a master of your craft. (laughs) So definitely watch this movie. But yeah. I think in the end of this case in like real life, I feel very justified that like Gertrude didn't, you know, live out to be in her old age. I mean, Paula is. The one thing about the movie that does kind of like you go, what? In the movie, the storyline is that this was all happening because Gertrude is trying to prevent people from knowing that Paula was pregnant. But that's not the case. No. It literally comes down to... She's an evil bitch. She's an evil bitch. Because, like, at what point, like, if that's the case, like, if I had someone in my house that wasn't my family and I was being paid to watch and it just wasn't good, I'd be like, you need to go back with your parents. Yeah. So that wraps it up for me. All right. Well, that is going to go ahead and wrap us up for today. Hopefully, if you had not known about this case, you learned something and we did the case justice. But we will be back here on Thursday for a stabby snippet. Bye, guys. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.